What a week in sports. The Texas Rangers go deep in free agency. The college coaching carousel spins. We talked to Tim Brown and Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame. Corby Davidson and Lincoln Riley leaving his beloved Sooners. And our own Marcus Carr and Rhett Lashley replacing Sonny Dykes at SMU. With Tim Brown, we also explore the coolest clubhouse in sports. The 10 players who have won the Heisman and been inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame as Brown was. He tells us about the upcoming documentary he's working on called The Perfect 10. But first, we hear from Lynn Holzman of the NCAA on the strong state of women's college basketball and the important steps being taken to elevate the women's Final Four, which returns to Dallas in 2023. So let's drop the mic and let's go. Welcome to the mic drop, everybody. Kevin Sullivan here, joined by Monica Paul, the executive director of the Dallas Sports Commission. I, I think there's a pretty good chance we're going to be joined by Monica's dog, Stella, at some point today during the recording of the mic drop. I'm looking forward to that. Also with us, of course, is Next Level Marcus Carr of Tony Faye PR. Thanks for listening and subscribing. We had a really great show today. If you like it, please give us a five-star review. That would help the cause. Monica, it's episode 41. They still haven't thrown us off the internet. We're, we're, we're cooking right along. Number 41, uh, open and shut case for Dirk Nowitzki as our honoree and our inspiration for today. I, I love Charlie Waters of the Cowboys. He gets an honorable mention. Uh, Dirk, of course, all 21 years of his unbelievable career with the Mavericks. I'm going to give you a hot sports take, Monica. I don't think that will ever happen again where an NBA player plays 21 years all with the same team. Of course, recently named to the all-time best 75 uh, players team for the 75th anniversary, 14-time All-Star, 12-time All-NBA, first European to start an All-Star game, first European to win MVP, led the Mavericks twice to the finals, including, of course, winning in 2011. Uh, and Monica, as you know, uh, he also gives back to our community a lot. He's a friend of the Sports Commission. Uh, he'll be involved in the in – the, uh, with the ATP coming back to Dallas next year. He's a big tennis guy uh, as well. So today we're inspired by Dirk Nowitzki, episode 41, number 41. But we also are inspired today by the life of Lee Elder, uh, the great PGA Tour legend and Dallas native who passed away this week at age 87. Of course, the first uh, player to compete in the Masters back in 1975. He overcame an awful lot of bigotry and all kinds of obstacles to forge a terrific uh, career as a winner on the PGA Tour and then later on, the, on uh, what's now known as PGA Tour uh, champions. Uh, did so much uh, with scholarships. It was a great example. Uh, Jim Richardson, the PGA of America president, called Lee Elder an inspiration to generations of golfers from all backgrounds who left an unforgettable legacy of resilience fortitude and a love of golf and for Lee Elder it all started in Dallas as a young boy he was a caddy uh, at an all-white club and that's where his love of the game started and what a life uh, we remember this week of, uh, of, of Lee Elder Dallas native uh, Monica is always in Dallas there is a ton of sports news uh, starting with Big 12 football championship this weekend Baylor Oklahoma State what do you think yeah, exciting uh, weekend for the Big 12. And, you know, we have uh, some new faces in this championship. So a lot of excitement here in Dallas. Uh, I know I have one of my staff members who went to Oklahoma State. So uh, and I have friends that went to Baylor. So it's going to be an interesting weekend, I think. Uh, but exciting to see. And just for the record, this is the third episode in a row where I have not mentioned the Texas Longhorns. So we're going to keep that that streak alive. Hey, uh, if we have to talk about, uh, you know, coaching changes or something like that, Texas doesn't have one just yet after one year. Yeah. Okay. Well, the other big, the, the other big newsmakers over the last uh, uh, a couple days is our Texas Rangers with an unreal free agent spending spree. Uh, John Daniels and Chris Young said they were going to do it. Owner Ray Davis opened up the uh, checkbook. And of course, with the signing of Corey Seager from the Dodgers, 10 years, 325 million, unbelievable. Biggest deal since A-Rod's $252 million 
contract way back in December of 2000. Also signing second baseman Marcus Semien, another all-star, right-hand pitcher John Gray, outfielder Cole, Cole Calhoun, right fielder, good fielder, tough guy. Uh, so, again, way to go, Rangers. It, it, good to have some star power rolling into Globe Life Field. Very impressive the way they have amped up their, uh, their building program there. Of course, uh, we talked to Rick Hart, the SMU athletic director, a few weeks ago about what it was going to take to keep Sonny Dykes, as it turns out, uh, you know, the lure of a power five was too much. And, uh, but credit to Rick Hart and our friends at SMU for acting quickly and hiring Rhett Lashley, a great hire, I would say, uh, great play caller, offensive, uh, uh, you know, genius, I, I guess you could say, former backup quarterback at Arkansas, but has sort of made his name as an offensive coordinator at Miami, Auburn, and of course, on the hilltop back in, in 2018-19. So this is a return to SMU. Marcus, uh, you're in grad school at SMU. You were at the uh, the last game uh, coached by Sonny Dykes. What's your take? You know, I, I'm really excited about about the new hire. Um, I think all of the all of the hilltop is as well. Um, the The departure of Sonny Dykes was interesting because it came right before Saturday's game, and so coming out of the tunnel, there was some booze across across the stadium, which I didn't think were totally appropriate because Sonny has completely turned around the. SMU program, but, you know, best of luck to Sonny at, at TCU. And I, you know, I, I still, I'm still hopeful for, for the Mustangs in the future. That's the luck until that iron skillet game next year. <laughs> exactly. Marcus. And you're going to have to find that, that, uh, you know, that rivalry, you know, juice in your heart. Uh, Monica, a ton going on at the sports commission, uh, starting with the Dallas marathon coming up in a week and a half. Uh, what, uh, what's going on? Big week uh, this week. Um, yes, Dallas Marathon, not this weekend, but next weekend, 50th anniversary. Um, I just had a, a read and uh, it'll actually be coming out in our newsletter of how the Dallas Marathon started. So very inspiring of uh, the first marathon, just 80 uh, runners. And now with the other events, including 5K, 10K, well over 25,000 runners. So congrats to Paul Lambert and his team. I think we've had him on the, the mic drop a few times. Um, exciting news. I know we're going to talk to Lynn here shortly, but uh, we get to unveil our NCAA Women's Final Four uh, logo here for 2023. So very excited about that to share that with our community and uh, leaders and get that planning uh, underway because that's a, that's very special in our heart here in Dallas. Uh, we've got our FIFA World Cup uh, human rights presentation taking place on December 7th. And I just really want to give a shout out, Sully, to um, everyone who has put that plan together, uh, that's well over 200 pages uh, worth of uh, information and on key topics. Uh, and I know we've talked about it here on the mic drop a few times, um, everywhere from homelessness to LGBTQ plus uh, disability, uh, transportation, uh, housing rights, migrant rights, workers' rights, children's rights, a, a lot of uh, important topics and really looking forward to from a Dallas perspective, to be able to utilize that FIFA World Cup when we hosted in 2026 um, as a platform to further our community and, and make Dallas a better place for residents. And then obviously ensure that uh, all of our visitors and fans coming in for the World Cup um, have a great experience too. So um, just want to thank those leaders from our entire region, from Dallas to Arlington to Fort Worth and uh, Homeless Alliance, and a, a lot of different organizations and the time that they put in to put that plan together. Well, look, look, look forward to that for sure. Important uh, work being done there uh, that is a companion to the, to the bid, that the human rights component for sure. Uh, well, this week we're talking NCAA women's basketball and, of course, the 2023 Women's Final Four with Lynn Holzman of the NCAA. We're going to talk football with Tim Brown. And also visit with Corby Davidson of the ticket. This is a star-studded lineup this week on the mic drop. First, over to Rachel with a word from one of our sponsors. Dallas is known for its big wins when it comes to sporting events. Whether it be Final Fours, Winter Classics, Pro Drafts, or even international soccer matches, Dallas sets the standard. And now it's time for our biggest win yet. We want the 2026 World Cup. The Dallas Sports Commission is working hard to bring the World Cup back to our great city, and we need your help. Head over to DallasWorldCup2026.com to sign the pledge to bring it back. Be sure to follow us on all social media at World Cup Dallas to stay up to date on all things 2026 World Cup. 
Thanks, Rachel. Now, welcome Lynn Holtzman uh, to the mic drop. She is the VP of Women's Basketball at the NCAA. In that role, she's responsible for the strategic direction, oversight, operations, everything that has to do with women's basketball across all the, the divisions. She also serves as the primary liaison to the Women's Basketball Committees and provides strategic oversight on site selection, which is how Lynn and Monica are became such uh, good pals. Uh, uh, do, do, doing that work, uh, former conference commissioner. This is actually her second tour of duty uh, with the uh, with the NCAA. Uh, Lynn captain the women's basketball team at Kansas State. Uh, has a major has a master's degree from North Carolina. But I was pleased to note, Lynn, that you also have an MBA from Purdue. Uh, now I uh, I also have a degree from the prestigious Cranard School of Management at Purdue. It was not an MBA, uh, just a bachelor's degree. I squeaked through there. Uh, but I'm a proud uh, Cranard alum as well. So boiler up and welcome to the mic drop. Thank you. I like I like the cup. Very nice. <laughs> well, Lynn, we're very, very excited to um, have you on the show today. Obviously very excited for this week. And uh, we've done some work uh, over the past few weeks of uh, our first tip-off meeting with some of your staff and our staff and our Big 12 counterparts. Uh, and partners there and some of our division two and division three uh, host institutions. Uh, but before we kind of get into that, uh, give us the overall status of wh where's women's basketball at right now. The season just started. Uh, I think Baylor's up to number five. Texas is, uh, you know, suddenly we're doing good uh, in, in basketball here. So we don't have to talk about Texas uh, football any longer. We're on to basketball. So I think Texas may have just dropped to 15, but uh, give us the overall status on, on women's basketball. Well, uh, as you said, you know, with the season launching and, and a lot of, um, I think, really um, competitive non-conference matchups at this time of year, it's, it's already proven to be pretty exciting. And I think it really is demonstrative of the um, ongoing um, competitive depth and parity within women's basketball. Um, we've seen also um, the, as a result of all of that and also a lot of the gender equity conversations, we've seen increased coverage by um, partners such as ESPN and others that already were supporting a lot of our programs and conferences, but then um, even having a women's basketball game on ABC and there'll be others throughout the season. Um, so that exposure, I think also provides great visibility for our game to uh, fans and, and supporters of, of basketball and then women's basketball and women's sports. It's been exciting. Um, as you just mentioned, the um, kind of shifts in that, that, that top 15, top 16 in particular, because we have these programs that are, you know, traveling across the country, playing each other and beating each other up. But um, I, I think it's just showing how exciting that our championship's going to be in anticipation for the final four. Well, I, I know we love our, our women's basketball here in Dallas. Uh, I think some people may not know that when I arrived in Dallas, uh, Dallas had just been awarded the men's final four for 2014 and was not awarded a women's final four uh, that round. So uh, it, it, it became very uh, crucial and top of our mind to uh, invest in women's basketball and how can we grow our resume. So we're very uh, excited that we were able to do that and host 2017, uh, which uh, I still think was the most exciting experience and crowd and atmosphere in American Airlines Center. And that takes into account NBA finals and, and other major events that have happened there. So um, then you, you had an interesting year last year in, in San Antonio, all the entire championship held in San Antonio, obviously you had to uh, navigate through COVID and hopefully that navigation is over to that extent and we're not having to endure that in the near future um, in Minneapolis this year for, for the final four and then back to Dallas in 2023, not only for the division one, but for the division two and three championships and uh, a great celebration of the 50th anniversary uh, of title nine. Um, kind of give our listeners of you know, you have committee who makes this the decisions on where you're going to host championship. Um, you know, what are some of the major goals that that you have out of that division two, three and division one championship together? And, you know, how can we further celebrate title nine, you know, leading up to our championship in Dallas? Yeah, I, I think there, there's a lot of opportunity there and a lot of um, opportunity, not just to showcase 
um, you know, the city of Dallas, the state of Texas, and, and all the work you all do to support NCAA championships and other sporting events. But it really is because of bringing the joint championship, the one, two, and three together, as you cited, because um, we've also tied with the help through your through the bid of Dallas, uh, the Sport Commission and the Big 12, is that this championship is going to be the culminating event of the NCAA's year, year plus long celebration, 50th anniversary of Title IX. So what that means then also is that um, even more than we typically would see the eyes of the world, not just the country, but the world are going to be on Dallas over that weekend of the Women's Final Four and our Division Two and Three championship. Um, I think as we, as you think about the runway leading up into the championship, it's a tremendous opportunity uh, because the signing of Title IX actually occurred in it, this 50th celebration actually is in the anniversary is in June of 22. So that provides a almost, you know, nine month runway, if you will, to really celebrate what Title IX has done in the educational space for women as the underrepresented gender, but also then in the sports space specifically. Um, then leveraging, obviously, the basketball and the hosting of that. It's a great opportunity as we think about women in leadership positions in corporate America, as we think about women and just the integration and the collaboration that's happening between men's and women's sports. Um, and there's been various trigger points along the way, as you know, as you cited last year in San Antonio, not just as a result of the COVID things, but really um, the things that were um, kind of um, exposed, if you will, out of that championship that really has, has, because of that more public scrutiny that was, you know, that was probably long overdue, it has really provided um, the opportunity for us to catapult our championship. And we're going to see that this year in 2022 and to be followed up by Dallas in 2023, it really provides Dallas the opportunity to position themselves um, to be part of that narrative and this new chapter around our women's basketball championship. Lynn, I, I know we're excited to, you know, really elevate uh, Title IX, women's basketball, anything that we can do. Um, you know, during our local organizing committee meetings and tip-off meeting a, a few weeks ago, um, we really went through top to bottom of uh, everything that we need to do here locally and working with your staff and how can we, you know, raise the bar from 2017 to 2023. Um, but one of the things that, you know, a lot of people I don't think maybe realize too, is it's more than just basketball on the court that the NCAA, as do many of our other partners and events that we have here um, of the give back to the community of, uh, you know, read to the final four, the legacy program, the courts, Give our listeners a little idea of, you know, what is it, uh, other community aspects that the NCAA provides when it comes into town? Sure. It's, it's, it's much more than just the three games, as you cited. I mean, obviously, the, the priority is to, you know, for the to crown a national champion and for a trophy to be raised and that celebration. But um, the event that we have really is um, very much a community engagement oriented event as well. And there's aspects of it, as you said, that um, for us to be able to leave a legacy within the community, that's one angle of that. We do that through, um, there's a, a restoration of a court that takes place. And uh, we work with Nancy Lieberman Charities to do that and the local organizing committee um, to uh, go in and restore a court. Um, often, that, often that is in an area that may be at a lower socioeconomic level. And it really, I think, had to help reinforce to provide a safe um, space for boys, girls, uh, men and women all to enjoy sports as a way to bring a community together. The, we also um, do some events with the KL Cancer Fund, which is um, with, our, with the Women's Basketball Coaches Association. It is their charity of choice. And the KL Cancer Fund comes in and they often work with a um, cancer research center and to bring in a donation to support cancer research to help um, address all women's cancers. Um, so that's tied to our event as well. And then there's some different, um, you mentioned read to the final four. That's a program that both the men's and women's final fours work on together in the community that the championship is the, the final four is taking place. And uh, that program engages uh, typically third graders throughout the community. And in some cases, 
um, even more broadly throughout a state to get involved and to really encourage um, and through competition among schools and classrooms and everything for youth to, um, to read um, because that's a very pivotal time in their educational development. And then the last thing I'll mention, just a couple other community events of which the community can come out and participate um, includes our, the bounce, which is about 2000 kids <laughs> that get together and are bouncing basketballs. Um, and then eventually they end up at Turney Town, which is a free fan oriented event. Um, and then we also have events such as a Super Saturday, um, of which it's typically a concert, a free concert that's available to the community to come out. Those are just a few samplings of the things that we do with our hosts. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a really important aspect of our championship to not just um, go to game, have an opportunity to go to games, it's to get involved with the championship itself. And for the NCAA, um, from our perspective, it's a way to do something positively in the community as we bring a championship there. Lynn, you mentioned the the important long overdue steps to improve equity and equality in women's basketball and women's sports. As a father of of three daughters who are all athletes, one in college, you know, it's really important. And uh, congratulations on all the steps that you're taking. Now, one of the steps with the Final Four is using the March Madness tag on the women's tournament as well. Talk about that decision a little bit and how, how that came to be. Sure. Um, and as you said, you know, what one of the big things that um, has happened as a result of the gender equity review is uh, officially <laughs> that the women's um, basketball in our championship is also using that moniker, if you will, March Madness, that that was a brand that was really built up on the men's side. What it enables us to do um, from a strategic side of it is to really, um, I, I liken it to, it's a fifth season of the year. You know, we have winter, spring, summer, fall. We also have March and March is all about college basketball. And within that umbrella brand, we're able to now really um, promote market both the men's and women's basketball championships for that three plus week period where the sports eyes are on what's happening with our, with our um, NCAA men's and women's uh, championships, the tournaments. Um, the decision around it, it was, you know, I think as we saw the public outcry, as we saw the coaches, and we saw others that really were um, asking the question of why, why not, um, that, that really, frankly, I think triggered um, the leadership and, and others um, taking a step back and doing that evaluation and to really start to look at this in a different light, as I just described. Really what, as, you, as a brand evolves, if you will, how then a brand can either be further elevated when other aspects may be brought in, in this case, brought into an equitable level, the Women's Basketball Championship. So I know from, um, as I work with the Division I Women's Basketball Committee, um, with our Women's Basketball Oversight Committee, people from our schools, our membership, the NCA membership, the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, our student athletes, I mean, this is what they, they, have, they were clamoring for, asking for, and I couldn't be more thrilled that we have officially are now heading down this path. It's going to be great and, and, and will no doubt play a part in elevating the, the championship even further. Now, one thing that's been debated online with media and fans alike is the notion of putting the women's championship in the same market as the men's championship. Where does the what's the NCAA's thinking on that debate right now? You think that would be a helpful thing to elevate the championship or, or not so much? I, I, as you said, I think that's the debate right there. And th that is one of the recommendations out of the um, independent firm that did a gender equity assessment of, it's one of the recommendations, frankly, that has garnered the most um, debate to use the word you cited. Um, and for that reason, our men's and women's basketball committees are working collaboratively to methodically examine this, the whole concept. So you have both the operational logistical aspects about executing it. And I think there are, um, you know, if you think about what is needed, um, and Monica and others are fully aware of really what it takes to host these, champ these final fours independently. And then if you were to put them in one community, together at the same time, everything from the necessary hotel rooms at the level that are needed um, and other types of infrastructure support. 
But then the, the philosophical and I think um, very methodical examination that's taking place by those two committees and, and with staff is to really what will this do for both the men's and women's basketball championships? You know, you want to we want to make sure that then the presentation of the championships, particularly the women's championships, isn't overshadowed. It doesn't get overshadowed by the men's final four. The idea is is to make to is to continue to grow and to elevate the women's championship that has been on this growth trajectory, in particular for the last decade. Um, you want to make sure you're not going to do anything to cannibalize that growth. So it is a very strategic, as I said, methodical, intentional examination. Ultimately, the selection of sites of our men's and women's final fours are the decision of our two championship committees. And so therefore they're working on this concept together. Um, and they'll ultimately, our own membership will be those that make the decision around it. Um, it, it it's a, it's a, debated issue. And, you know, some, some, um, you know, there's some proponents of it that think that it just um, really provides great opportunities, but there's others that, as I said, they just want to make sure that um, we don't do anything that stymies the growth that we have seen and continue to project for the women's final four overall. Well, in your job, Lynn, you have to be neutral. You've got to love all teams equally and you can't play favorites, but I noticed that your 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 K State Wildcats are off to a six and one start, but tonight uh, are facing number one South Carolina. So you, you I know you're going to be paying uh, close attention uh, to that. We won't put you on the spot to uh, to comment beyond that. But how did your own experience uh, as a student athlete uh, at K State influence the way that you've approached uh, your role as a leader in in uh, in women's basketball? My uh, experience as a student athlete, um, I, I would use the word, it, it was transformational. It really was. And I use that word because my experience was not perfect um, by any means. It wasn't, there were coaching changes when I played. Um, I, you know, the personal experience of playing or not, but I think all those, those things contributed to the type of leader that I am, um, along with a lot of other, you know, ex life experiences. But being having been a women's basketball student athlete, being in that environment um, at a and at a time in the old Big Eight conference, by the way, just to date myself, um, but at a time of which um, you know was was really um, you know within twenty years after you know, Title IX was signed. So even now in this position, I can even refer back to um, inequitable practices that took place because you know, it just, things happened or didn't happen. So I can refer back to that, but I think that also um, contributes to my sensitivity, my empathy, my desire to be a positive change agent in this way. And in fact, throughout my career, that has been something that has been very, very important to me in the, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space um, in particular for, for women is to make sure that we are, that we are positioned in a way to have opportunity and then success. So um, that experience as a student athlete and then getting into administration really, really was um, very formative in a lot of ways. Now, I want to be clear. I don't sit here and claim to know what the current student athletes, I can't, what their experiences are because it is so different nowadays. It really is. And that's why also that notion of empathy and connection, it is really um, a requirement. It's incumbent upon us to make sure we are communicating and getting direct feedback from our student athletes and our coaches about what the realities of the world are today, and then put them in a position to, to um, have a tremendous experience through, through the championship, which is the space that myself and our team and our committees occupy. Um, but I wouldn't have given up that experience for anything. Well, Lynn, I wanted to uh, thank you for joining us uh, here on the mic drop. Um, looking forward to seeing you this week for our, our logo unveil and uh, working with you and your team uh, to host that championship in 2023. And Sully, I will uh, chime in here a little bit about this combined championship. You know, we do have uh, a men's bid process starting right now uh, as of 
about a week or two ago. Uh, and then there, there is a little checkbox uh, on that application of if we'd be interested in hosting the women's too. So I'm pretty sure you know what I checked on that, uh, <laughs> on that application, right? <laughs> and we did so, hear from Stella. There was one yap from Stella there. That was a vote in favor of Title IX and a big celebration for the 50th uh, anniversary. Yes, uh, absolutely. Stella is fully on board uh, and will we'll be a part of our uh, championship in 2023. So, Lynn, thank you for joining us uh, and definitely look forward to working with you here over the next few years. And now uh, over to uh, Rachel from a with a word from our sponsors. Did you know the Dallas Zoo provides guests with real life opportunities to make memorable connections with more than 2,000 animals? Please support the zoo's mission to inspire and empower action on behalf of the wildlife in Texas and around the world. Visit DallasZoo.com to purchase your tickets today. Now we are honored to welcome Dallas's own Tim Brown to the mic drop. Of course, Woodrow Wilson High School class of 1984 won the Heisman at Notre Dame, first wide receiver to do so. Prolific receiver, kick and punt returner for 17 years in the NFL, 16 with the Raiders, inducted into the college and football, uh, the Pro Football Halls of Fame, not to mention the Woodrow Sports Hall of Fame, by the way, <laughs> along, with the, along with the late Davey O'Brien, who won the Heisman in 1938, which, of course, makes Woodrow the only public school in America to produce two Heisman Trophy winners. Tim is one of only 10 players to win the Heisman and be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Fewer, fewer men have gone from the Heisman to the Hall than have walked on the moon. So this is a special thing and a special uh, episode for us to be able to welcome Tim Brown uh, to the mic drop. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Hey, thank you guys. Appreciate it. We're going to get into the Notre Dame coaching change <laughs> here in a, in a minute, a little bit of a bombshell earlier this week. Uh, but I want to start with a question about your role as the executive producer uh, of a documentary called The Perfect Ten. Uh, recently brought seven of the 10 uh, members of the club who went from the Heisman to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, seven came to Dallas for a film shoot in a uh, warehouse in Deep Ellum. Of course, two members of the club, Doak Walker and Paul Horning, uh, another Notre Dame alum, uh, are no longer with us. Of course, OJ Simpson on the list, but not uh, participating. So let's hit the other names, Tim. These are the other six people that you were with as you began work on this documentary. Charles Woodson, Barry Sanders, Marcus Allen, and then four, three in addition to you with local connections, Tony Dorsett, Earl Campbell, and Roger Staubach. Uh, first of all, how, how did you get the idea to, to bring this group together for a documentary? Well, when, when I was uh, told about this, literally, I was on my way to give my um, uh, Hall of Fame induction speech when uh, a friend who came up from Dallas came up to me in the hotel and, uh, and said, hey, did you know that you're only the ninth player to win the Heisman and uh, be inducted into the Hall of Fame? And I just sort of shoot him off. I was like, man, Lee, I mean, there's probably been 30, 35 guys. You know, you just, and he just sort of chuckled and said, no, no, no. <laughs> and um, so when I got on the bus, I literally Googled it up. And uh, and at that time, Google hadn't added me. So there was only eight guys. And I was, I was really shocked. And, um, you know, the more we thought about that uh, as the weeks went on, you know, we thought about, you know, how can we help? How, you know, we've, we've, we've left an incredible legacy on the football field. Um, how can we, uh, how can we, you know, leave an incredible legacy off the football field? So with that, we just started, you know, talking and, and trying to come up with ideas, man. And, um, um, and, and then this guy named Blue, Mark Bluestein came, came, uh, came around and said, hey, look, I love what you guys are trying to do with this nonprofit and raise money and all that stuff, but you guys may have a brand. This could be a brand. I mean, this could be something that companies want to, you know, bring you guys in to, for speaking engagements or whatever. And and with that, you know, we we started thinking about, um, you know, hey, maybe we should put a documentary together and things of that nature. So uh, and that's how it all sort of came about. And I'm saying this in two minutes, and but it took all that took about four or five years uh, to happen. And um, so we're, we're in a great place now. The documentary went well. We're in the stage now of shooting the individual shots. Uh, most of us are done. I think only two more guys need to finish their shots. And uh, hopefully, you know, this thing will roll out and, 
at the Hall of Fame next year, and and um, it'll be everything that we want. We asked it that we we want it to be. What was it like? You know, producer Steve Trout from NFL Films called it the coolest clubhouse in the world. Being there with you seven uh, uh, in in that Deep Ellum warehouse on that shoot, uh, what was it? What was that like just to, to be gathered in person? Well, you know, for me, I, I still fanboy around Tony Dorsett and, and Roger Staubach, you know, growing up here in Dallas, man. And Marcus Allen and I have such a relationship uh, because, you know, I tell people he literally taught me how to play the game at the NFL level. Um, and, you know, of course, Barry Sanders and I could, you know, were, you know, neck and neck with when it came to uh, uh, all-purpose yardage and things, things, things like that in college. So I have a relationship with all these guys. Uh, you know, so not that I was a focal point because they set me in the middle, but but certainly, you know, being able to reach out to Roger and and, and knowing part of his story, but hearing, you know, stuff that we obviously didn't know about, uh, it was it was really, you know, I won't say it's surreal and all that stuff because these are real guys who have real lives, but uh, we've never sat down before in any circumstances um and, and talked about our lives and you know just having that opportunity was was pretty big now roger staubach of course is the only quarterback in the club now jim plunkett who won the heisman in 1970 may still get in to the mm -hmm. pro football hall but why do you think uh of the nine only one is a quarterback anything anything to that yeah i mean there's a lot to it you know i think um you know, when I started knowing about the Heisman late in high school, which would have been, you know, 83, 84, um, you take that uh, up until really Cam Newton, if you were a quarterback and you won the Heisman, you had to adapt to the NFL system that, um, that you were drafted into. And not till Cam Newton came around when the Carolina Panthers just said, hey, look, whatever this guy did in college is what we're going to do in the NFL. And they sort of changed that position where now you have Lamar Jackson who's doing whatever he wants to do when it comes to, um, you know, playing, playing that offensive scheme that they have in Baltimore. Um, and, and so these guys are having more success than, than the guys in the, in the 80s and 90s because those guys had to adapt to an NFL system and maybe that's not what they were running, you know, in college. So, um, you know, so I, I think, you know, for Roger – to be able to do what he did uh, and his story is, you know, incredible going to the Navy and doing all that stuff and, you know, playing, coming back. I think he was a 27 year old rookie or whatever. So it's really an amazing story that he was able to put together such a great career uh, in really a short period of time. So Tim, during, with the uh, young Heisman winners now in the NFL, uh, Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, you mentioned Baker Mayfield, uh, Derrick Henry, off to a fantastic start. Who do you think uh, has the best chance? What do you think about them? Um, you know, I, up until Derrick Henry got hurt, I think everybody was thinking that, um, you know, the last two or three years that he's put together, if he can, you know, do that for another three, four, five years, he would certainly uh, have a shot. This injury is tough because, you know, that, broken bone on top of the foot can can be problematic going forward so it's going to be really interesting to see how how he comes back and how he uh, is able to keep going um obviously what Lamar is doing is sort of out of this world right you know I mean uh if he can certainly keep going you know he's going to be I think he has a, a great shot uh in years to come the crazy thing about this though you know the guys that we're talking about now we're 15 years away from those guys being, you know, even thought about as an inductee into the Hall of Fame. So, um, Ky you know, Kyler is, is doing his thing. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think we have some great guys. I love to see these guys representing and I always cheer for, for them. Unless they play the Raiders and I have a hard time. But other than that, I always try to cheer for these guys when I can. So it sounds like, Tim, you, you still pretty uh, well follow the NFL today. So can you give us any thoughts? What's your take on this little slump that our Cowboys uh, are in? Uh, look, you know, when you don't have uh, your, 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 your bullets out there, it's just hard to, to shoot, right? You know, you can shoot, but, you know, when you're shooting blanks, it, it's not going to affect what's happening. And, you know, um, uh, the, the receivers they have out there, you know, right now, 
those guys are trying their best. They're doing all they can. But there's a reason why you pay guys $20 million <laughs> to catch balls <laughs> because they're pretty good. And, um, you know, CD is not looking – CD Lamb is not making that kind of money, but CD is a very good player. And uh, when, when him and Cooper are out, it's just problematic for that offense. One of them they can deal with, but two makes it really, really tough. But they're coming back now, so I, I expect that they're going to play better, better football going forward. Okay, now I have a, a really good tidbit here that I just have to ask you about. Uh, as a freshman at Woodrow, you didn't play football, right? You were in the band, which probably makes you the only person on earth uh, to play in high school in a high school band, win the Heisman, and make it to the to the Hall of Fame. What <laughs> instrument did you play? And you are you still a musician? I, I I played the percussion, so I was drums, bass drum, and um, uh, I don't play uh, the drums. Where's my tambourine? <laughs> uh, but I do play a mean tambourine. So uh, I don't know. Hold on a second. I got a tambourine right here. So this is my church bag. And uh, so, so yeah, I, 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 I play the tambourine. So that's what, <laughs> so um, I like to tell people I play a mean tambourine, but uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what I do at this point. So, um, and I love it. Not, not only is, is it a good workout playing this thing, but um, you know, just uh, staying close to, you know what I grew up doing is is uh, is uh, is uh, pretty pretty special to me. Sounds like you play in church. I know how important faith is. I know how important your faith is to to your journey, uh, starting right here in Dallas. Uh, your your the memoir that you wrote a few years ago. I know mm-hmm. had a lot of uh, of that part of your story in it. So say a word or two about the role that that faith plays in your life and the example that you try to set for young people through that uh, demonstration of your faith? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, man, you know, growing up in church the way I, I did, you know, being in church every Wednesday, Friday, all day Sunday, you know, we were at church, um, you know, uh, you have a tendency, you know, the better you get in sports to think that it's all about you, you know, and and not about what, what God has blessed you with or the ability that he's given you. And I think I was sort of getting that way, you know, going through college and winning a Heisman and certainly being drafted in the league. Um, and, you know, at some point I just started being reminded of what God had done for me and the doors he had opened for me, you know, being at a high school that was four, 25 and one and uh, getting a scholarship to the University of Notre Dame and Notre Dame coming to recruit another kid uh, from another school. And that night I had four touchdowns, you know, and a kick return, punt return, long pass, long catch. But yet I, I'm thinking that it's me. It's all me. You know what I mean? And I just think uh, once I came to that realization that God had his hands on my life, um, it sort of, you know, took the pressure off of what I was doing because I knew, okay, whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. Um, and at the same time, you know, it gave me an opportunity to really be thankful uh, for, for all that he's done for me. What became of the player that uh, Notre Dame was there to recruit that night? Oh, no, he, he went on to play for Oklahoma, uh, Dante Jones. Uh, played middle oh, linebacker for, he he replaced right. uh, Mike Singletary with Chicago Bears. So he played 10 years in the league. So, uh, yeah, but uh, didn't want to go to Notre Dame, though. <laughs> Speaking of Notre Dame, uh, what do you make? Were you surprised by the big news this week that Brian Kelly is uh, uh, off to LSU? And what do you think Notre Dame will do uh, to replace him? Shocked. Not not surprised, shocked, really shocked. Uh, you know, I was just there for the SC game a few weeks ago, and and there were literally no signs of him ever thinking about leaving uh, the university. And now that we dug into it a little bit, it looks like him and, you know, Jack Swarberg may, may have had a little something, something going on that um, they weren't on the same page about. But um, I'm still surprised that he would choose a university like LSU. You know, going from Notre Dame to LSU is going to be a drastic change for him not only in the environment, but in the players that he's going to be coaching. So uh, that's going to be interesting to see how that ha- how that translates for him. But as far as Notre Dame, man, I, I really have no clue at this point. Uh, I know that there are a couple of coaches out there that they're looking at, but um, they may be busy through the bowl, bowl season and Notre Dame can't wait that long. Do you go with a young kid like uh, Freeman, who's a defensive coordinator there now? 
um, who has no coaching experience, but everybody loves him and, and thinks he's done an incredible job recruiting uh, for ND. That, that's going to be the question, you know, and um, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision, but I sure would like to be in the room listening to it. That's for sure. Now, Notre Dame needs a couple of breaks to get in the college football playoff uh, as we get to championship week. What do you think uh, their chances are? Uh, you know, I mean, a couple of things have to happen that, um, you know, may not be that realistic. And the biggest of them may be in, you know, Cincinnati getting upset by, by Houston. You know, I, I think the Houston football team is, uh, is, is a good team, but the Cincinnati team is pretty solid, man. They find ways to beat you all kinds of ways. So um, I think that's going to be tough. You know, Alabama, Georgia, you know, yeah, I think there's a good possibility that Georgia can beat Alabama. Uh, but you know, you know, you never count saving up with in these kind of games, right? You find a way to win them. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll wait and see, man. But uh, hey, look, we haven't had much luck in the in the playoffs, so I'll take being number five and going to a nice bowl game, enjoying the sun. <laughs> I will I will take that and be happy. Yeah, like like so many uh, athletes that we've had here on the podcast. Um, that, you know, after their playing career, um, they choose to stay here in Dallas and, and make Dallas their home. Why did you, you know, decide to stay here in Dallas? Uh, look, I mean, I, I love, I love California, you know, LA and Oakland, you know, uh, but that just wasn't my lifestyle, you know, um, Raider Nation is, uh, I know Cowboy fans are, are, are special, but Raider Nation is next level. And um, with me, you know, we had such a great relationship. It was just hard to, to live uh, a regular life, you know, being in that environment. So uh, it's always great being here. You know, people look at you and by the time they figure out who you are, you walk by them already, right? But, uh, and now with the mask, you don't have to worry about that. You can just walk around, do whatever you want to do. Uh, so, um, but yeah, you know, for me, my family is here. You know, certainly I always want to be near my family and, you know, uh, I do a lot of traveling and being in the middle of the country certainly helps uh, also. Well, Tim, thanks for, uh, for joining us. And I, and I want to uh, let our listeners know, if you want to know more about Tim's journey, check out his book, The Making of a Man, How Men and Boys Honor God and Live with Integrity. It came out a few years ago, well worth reading. There's a study guide that goes with it. If you, if you want to get serious about, about uh, kind of following the path that, that Tim has laid out for us. So, uh, so thanks. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Really an honor to have you on the podcast. Hey, thank you guys. I appreciate the time. All right. Now over to Rachel with a word from one of our sponsors. The Perot Museum of Nature and Science plays a vital role in preparing the most talented and diverse STEM workforce of tomorrow right here in Dallas. Become a member today and enjoy free admission and other valuable benefits to support this nonprofit landmark. Visit perotmuseum.org for more information. Thanks, Rachel. And now we are pleased to be joined by award-winning co-host of The Hardline with Bob Sturm on Sports Radio 1310, The Ticket, Corby Davidson. I'm sure, pretty sure Corby is one of those TCU alums that, that uh, ponied up, excuse the pun, to get Spike Dykes across town, Spike Dykes, Sonny Dykes across town. Spike Dykes, that would have been some, uh, that would have been some, uh, some feat. Uh, We'd have a story, uh, as Mike Reiner used to we say. We would. Uh, I last saw Corby at the Ryder Cup in Wisconsin. Corby, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us here on the Mic Drop. You bet, Sully. Anytime, man. Let's start with the Texas Rangers opening up the vault. What do you think of the moves? Corey Seager, Marcus Semien, John Gray, even Cole Calhoun, I think, is a good pickup. Uh, what, what do you uh, – what's, what's your take? I'm pretty shocked. I mean, I – you know – to be honest with you, like most people around here, I've kind of checked out on baseball over the last two years just because there's been nothing literally to talk about or watch or anything as far as substance goes. And so, you know, when the Rangers had that big proclamation a couple of weeks ago that, hey, we're going to spend $150 million, I'm like, all right, great, good luck. You know, have fun finding anybody that's going to want to come here as this thing is trying to rebuild and boom you know, like shot out of a cannon, they end up spending 560 some odd million bucks in a 24 hour period. And I'm blown away, literally cannot believe it happened that way. 
Corby, I'm a, a big Longhorn fan, so I have to, I need to know your take on this Lincoln Riley going to leaving OU and going to USC. Yeah, I, um, it was a rough 24 hours. I made, uh, I made friends with a nice bottle of bourbon on Sunday and just sat there with my own thoughts. Uh, I, um, I'm, I'm still pretty shocked by it. You know, the more that things start to unfold and you kind of peel the onion back and you realize why it happened, it kind of makes sense. But I think that, you know, from the OU perspective, it's a, it's a short-term killer. There's no question about it. You know, not only is Lincoln leaving, um, he's recruited so well in California and half their 22 and 23 class, including, you know, the, the best quarterback in the country, the best running back in the country, one of the best receivers in the country, they're all from that area. And so he's going to gut it. He's going to, you know, try to take this program down from the inside. And that's kind of hard for me to, to deal with knowing that on Saturday night, he was playing for basically a, a chance to go to the playoffs. So um, it sucks. It really, really sucks. But, you know, it kind of sounds like that this was going to happen one way or another, um, whether it was this year or the next year that he had one foot out the door. And you could kind of tell by the way OU played this year, it was not, something was wrong. Something was weird and nobody could put their finger on it. And I really do think it, a lot of it has to do with Lincoln being half checked out. And, but I'm excited. You know, I think um, Brent Venables is the name that, that pops up everywhere. Um, I, I know that most of the former players that, 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 you know, played in that era are really pulling for and pushing for Brent um, to come in here and, and try to work wonders with the, with the defense and they'll find an offensive coordinator. That's not going to be a problem, but. Yeah, it sucked. It was a really, really rough couple hours and weird, strange few hours. But I've uh, I've completed the grieving process. Well, you know, I mentioned you're a, you're a TCU alum, but anybody who listens to the Hardline knows of your devotion to OU. So, yeah. how did that come about, and why didn't you go to OU? Well, that's a longer story <laughs> that I'll make I'll make really short. But um, so yeah, my my whole family's from up there in Oklahoma. Dad played football there in the fifties. And so I grew up like crazy out of control, hardcore Oklahoma fan. I, you know, my first, I remember the first time I went to, to a game there, my, I was six and my dad took me and it was against Utah state. It was kind of the test drive, you know, whether or not I could make it a full game. And they were up like 65 to nothing. And, and he was like, all right, well, you're ready to go. I'm like, no, I'm not. We're staying for the entire game. So um, you know, it's been a love affair since I was before I came have memories, basically. So um, the long and short of why I didn't go there was my sister was at TCU. She played she went there to play soccer. She quit after her freshman year. But um, so she was always bothering me to go, you know, she's two years older than me to go hang out with her at TCU. I already had a roommate at OU everything. It's my senior year in, in high school. And um and so I go over there and to some big, just huge party thing that they had. I'm sure it was some fraternity or sorority party that I ended up going to. And, and I had an absolute blast over there. I might have met you. Yeah, this is yeah. TCU. I, I might have met a young lady uh, that night. I can't, um, <laughs> I won't go into detail or anything, but um and then, and then I, and so I was like, man, maybe I should apply here. And TCU ended up giving me a, a little scholarship, um, an academic scholarship, which OU didn't because OU, TCU was easy to get into back then. They were dying for people to, to, uh, to get on campus and OU wasn't, they were still a, you know, a behemoth. And so uh, it kind of worked out that way, but I never lost my, you know, TCU was in, that was still Southwest Conference days. No one was going to football games. I would still spend my Saturdays up in Norman. I would go up there to the games and stuff like that. So yeah, it's just is what it is. It's weird. How do you at least root for TCU on the, you know, other yeah. than when they, when they play? Yeah, you? for okay. sure. Yeah. All I right. had TCU season tickets for years and years and years. So sorry. All right. Well, I just wanted to, just wanted to straighten that out. I always wondered that. So yeah. Uh, uh, this is the portion of the pod where we ask our guests, for a recommendation, a download, a stream, could be book. Uh, if you're really smart, like Mark Followell, it'll be a book, uh, uh, podcast, movie, TV, music, you name it. Uh, what do you got for us? Uh, well, I just started the Beatles doc uh, last night, and um, 
I can't even explain to you how amazing it is from a, you know, I'm 52 now and grew Shocking. up, right. Grew up, um, you know, wanting to consume everything about the Beatles just because, you know, like when I became conscious of music, it was almost like, um, imperative that if you wanted to, to talk any music, you had to know about the Beatles. And so, you know, I loved them. And, but seeing this, seeing what Peter Jackson has done, it's unbelievable. Like it is just from the minute you're thrown into this Twickenham studio with these guys in 1969, um, for, you know, again, I've only watched the first episode, but I could not get enough of it. Like it, it was incredibly moving. It's incredibly powerful. It's, it's funny. It's, and it, you know, as far as, uh, I had no idea. I, you, you just, you know, you think you've seen everything and read everything about the Beatles. Not even close, man. This thing is an eye opener and it's genius. Yeah, I have resisted uh, Disney Plus. Our kids are not that age anymore and I'm not a Star yeah. Wars Mandalorian guy. Uh, this right. may be the thing that gets me to, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to uh, sign up for Disney Plus. It's, it's, it's called Get Back, uh, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Peter Jackson. Yep. Uh, so that's, that's a good one. What do you got, Monica? Well, uh, you know, over the holidays, silly, I had to take in the full Yellowstone Marathon that was taking place. And oh, this is the absolutely. Hallmark Channel time of year. Um, but uh, I've been doing, you know, a little bit more driving back and forth to Dallas uh, lately. So I took on and did the entire Dirty John podcast and then realized, I think I've seen this uh, on Netflix or, or somewhere. So I rewatched the entire episodes of uh, Dirty John. And boy, let me tell you, uh, I don't think uh, it's a true story. And, and one, I don't think I would ever uh, do the online dating thing after uh, listening to that <laughs> podcast and watching that show. So I'm, I'm out there. It is. Uh, it, it, it's pretty creepy. So mine this week, I, I got uh, uh, The Shrink Next Door, which was another great podcast, yeah. Monica. Uh, and and I would say the uh, the Apple uh, TV Plus uh, uh, version of it, which stars Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd, uh, among others, it's a great cast. It's good, but it's not unbelievable. You know, fall down on the floor. The podcast, I would say, was was even more compelling in a, in a strange way than than the series. But I'm I'm going through that. Of course, uh, Succession and Yellowstone are consuming most of my uh, my thinking uh, and, and energy. But I also downloaded. Uh, bad sport the netflix it's a netflix series of, of sports documentaries and there's one on on uh, headache smith who was a dallas kid from from spruce high school who got into yeah. a uh, sports betting gambling uh fixing thing at arizona state and believe it or not later ended up on a 10-day contract with the mavericks so i got to meet him uh in those days uh i think he pronounced his first name steven if i remember correctly yeah. i have Stevan Headache Smith. So I'm going to check that out on a flight uh, that I'm that I'm taking soon. It, it's really uh, good. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. And and so he was on with Norm and Donnie um, a couple of weeks ago talking about it, and it was fascinating. Just hearing. I mean, it's a you know, it's in our wheelhouse, like you said. You got to actually meet him and semi work with him a little bit, and and uh, yeah, the story's unreal, especially from a local angle. We'll be checking that out. So let's just give us a parting thought, Corey, before we let you go. Corby, mm -hmm. the uh, you have an just in Bob too, but you guys have a unusual connection with the fans. Everybody does it. The ticket. How do you explain mm -hmm. that phenomenon? Uh, Tony Faye and I try to explain this to people who are not in Dallas. Uh, the right. power that the ticket has as a tastemaker, trendsetter, influencer. Uh, break it down for us. Man, it's really hard. I. You know, I got in early on and was lucky enough as a as a kid to kind of grow up in the in the system. And you know, I started working there when I was 24. And, and like I said, I'm 52 now. It's really the only job I've ever had. I've you know had different partners along the way and had different jobs within the the station. But it's really been my life. And so to kind of see the connection that was obviously there really early on that Mike Reiner and Greg Williams and and uh, Gordo and George and Junior all had with those, with the with the listeners. It was weird from you know just kind of being just having my foot in the door and seeing that, um, and then seeing it kind of grow and and be cultivated in a way that it really is kind of inexplicable. And even if you go to other places or 
you know, like you guys, I'm sure will talk to uh, whether it's athletes coming into town or businesses and like, Hey, you got to get in with the ticket. You got to, you know, you have to really, and you can't explain it. It just, it's something that was so organic and pure um, at the time. And it's, and it's continued on. And, you know, now I'm in that place where every single remote that we have, and thank God we're back to doing remotes. Um, every remote that we have, someone comes up, it's 25 years old or 30 or whatever. And they're like, yeah, I was in the car with my dad listening to you guys every single time, multiple people. Um, and I grew up with you guys. I didn't like it when I was a teenager. And then I, you know, I turned 22 or three or four or whatever and, and got back into it. And now they're in and, you know, and we're probably not too far away from the next generation. So it's just a connection that um, I think it, it, it's probably a lot to do with the fact that we don't, we're not 100% sports, obviously. And we talk about our lives and we talk about our families and we are very open about things and, and, you know, tragedies within our lives. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it's an open book, that's for sure. And, and I think maybe that resonates more than anything, but it's a lot of different things. And it, it's really tough to, to pinpoint one or two, to be honest with you. But I'm glad it's there, man, because it's, it's the most unique radio station in the country. And I don't know if it can, if it's going to be replicated ever again. Like, I really believe that. Well, I remember you coming in as a youngster. Uh, you looked younger than 24, getting tape and Mavericks post-game locker rooms and yeah. you, you've always been a good guy and and we really appreciate you coming on and all the best uh, for continued success both on the air with your family and also uh, truly completing the post-Lincoln Riley grieving process so thanks right thanks Corby for joining us uh, on behalf of Monica Paul and the Dallas Sports Commission thanks to our guests Corby Davidson Lynn Holtzman of the NCAA and the great Tim Brown thanks to the Mike Drop production team Danielle Whitelaw-Piscura, Angela Lang, and Marcus Carr of Tony Faye PR. Uh, the guys at Vocal Media for keeping the, the dials humming, our showrunner and visionary Tony Faye. Until next time, thanks for listening, everybody.